Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Welcome back to Pediatric Meltdown, and today I have a guest that's going to talk about one of our most challenging patient visits, and that's for aggressive children. I'd like to welcome Dr. Paresh Patel. Dr. Patel completed his undergraduate, graduate, and medical schooling at the University of Michigan, where he studied neurobiological mechanisms of stress regulation. He completed his residency training in general psychiatry and fellowship training in child psychiatry at Stanford University, and then returned to the University of Michigan, where he's currently a clinical professor and medical director of ambulatory psychiatry. Dr. Patel works primarily with children and adolescents, where he provides clinical care across the continuum of ambulatory psychiatry psychiatric emergency services, and inpatient child and adolescent psychiatry. In his work, he brings to bear a wealth of neuroscience grounded in scientific methodology to understand and treat complex behavioral disorders, particularly those resulting in disruptive behaviors. I've also known Dr. Patel through the Child Psychiatry Access Program in Michigan called MC3, where he has just helped me out so much. Please welcome Dr. Patel. Hey, Prash, how are you? Good. How are you, Leah? I'm doing great. This is the most fun thing I get to do, and I'm delighted to get to spend some time with you. It's been a long time since we've seen each other. Well, through the MCP program, you've got become uh, pretty much a de facto child psychiatrist, so we don't hear from you very much anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for listeners out there who don't know what MC3 is, it's this amazing service that the University of Michigan child psychiatrists provide to primary care. And honestly, it was a game changer for me. I changed my medication prescribing completely because of you guys. And I think I'm much safer now because of it. So um, it has been so great. And for people who don't live in Michigan, a lot of states do have these child psychiatry access programs. So you may want to check that out. Um, But, you know, thanks to your team. Uh, Thanks for your partnership. Uh, You were one of the, I think you were the first and the champion for that program. And it turned out to be a really just a wonderful partnership that I think flowered into a fantastic program. Well, it's amazing. Yeah, the first outreach I got from you guys was from Dr. Sheila Marcus on Facebook, which was so funny. It was like, hey, I'm a child psychiatrist. Would you like any help? I'm like, oh my gosh, would I ever? So that was a question, right? (laughs) Yes, exactly. It was the beginning of a beautiful relationship. So, well, let's just jump right in. How did you decide to become a child psychiatrist? Yeah, that's a, a much longer answer than we probably want to spend here because I never anticipated becoming a child psychiatrist. You know, I'm Indian and uh, like Indians, uh, my parents were uh, always pushing towards medicine um, and they anticipated that I would be like a neurosurgeon or something like that. I like medicine and I really love surgery, in fact. And so when I went into um, uh, undergraduate, I was anticipating going into a, a more of an invasive specialty, if you will. Frankly, even my daughter, who's now a medical student, says that's probably would have been a good field for me because 
I love gadgets and tools and, and, and uh, things like that. Uh, but as I was, I, I was I was in a combined MD PhD program in the PhD program. As I was looking at other labs to work in, the labs that really interested me were the labs that revolved around mine. Uh, and I ended up working and doing my PhD in the laboratory of Dr. Stan Watson and Huda Kiel, who are is a psychiatrist and psychologist, and they're a, a very powerful and, and a well-known group to study stress biology. And so I did my graduate work in uh, stress biology, steroid receptor biology, molecular genetics, and understanding how stress systems respond. And when I came out of that graduate program, it was a combined MD PhD program. I was really looking then at, at neurology or psychiatry, and uh, really felt like the psychiatry was the most interesting. That you know, this was right before the decade of the brain, if you remember that, uh, where we were going to sequence the whole genome and know everything we needed to know. And uh, that was a, probably a little too sanguine of an interpretation, but we learned a lot, and it was really an exciting time to go into psychiatry. So I actually uh, started in psychiatry thinking I would be a you know, wet bench researcher. And throughout my residency, uh, I was working in the laboratory of uh, Dr. Roland Cirinello at Stanford University, who was a psychiatrist very interested in child development and the role of early developmental experiences on mental health outcomes. And he convinced me, uh, well, actually, it was unfortunately he passed away at an early age. And at that point, um, I was trying to determine what, whether to finish up my residency in general psychiatry and go back into the lab or learn more about development. And that's where I really met some uh, fantastic people at Stanford who I think uh, thankfully convinced me that I, need, I should learn more about development. And so I went into child psychiatry fellowship and I, it really, it was already a concept before, which is the understanding, the knowledge that, or the, the idea that what we see when we, you know, when, a, when an adult walks into our office, didn't start then. It didn't start even a year before. It started in childhood because almost every one of these adult patients with, you know, severe mental health um, needs has some form of either trauma or strong family history or things that really probably started in early childhood or adolescence. And so, and there were genetic studies to even support that. There were genetic studies showing that family histories uh, of earlier onset illness predicted more severe illness and things like that. And so did my child psychiatry training, and I decided I really wanted to understand what are the early the effects of the early life experiences on mental health outcomes. So it was a winding path. I love it. You were an early ACE adverse childhood experience researcher, and you guys were pioneers before it was a thing. Well, the, you know, the, the basic science has been looking at this for decades, right? There's, there's work well before the ACEs was ever developed on animal studies, looking at uh, in utero experiences, early, early life experiences in the animal models, and there's you know, decades of work on the impact in primate models and rodent models and things like that. And it just took some time before it sort of filtered its way into the mainstream psychiatry. Yeah, that whole translation of science to practice is so important. I, I love that you said you wanted to do something invasive. Well, psychiatry might be considered invasive <laughs> in, a, in a different way, emotionally invasive. It's funny that you would say about neurosurgery. My dad, who's from Singapore, um, is grateful that I'm a doctor, but he still wonders why I'm not a neuroscientist and a, neuro, a neurosurgeon and why I don't drive a Maserati, but hey. So 
in terms of your practice experience, what have you learned the most about psychiatric disorders and does it all boil down to psychotropic medications? Yeah, that's a great question uh, because, um, you know, there's that adage, the, the more I learn, the less I know or some version of that. And I think we I also speak for myself, but I also see this in uh, a lot of our trainees. We come out of residency training or fellowship training where we have really learned the current state and the current state is driven by a lot of things that aren't necessarily, I'm not sure what the right word is, maybe well-intentioned. There are, you know, there are drivers in health, health education development, for example, the whole pharmaceutical industry. And you come out of this training with a lot of experience and knowledge and biological psychiatry. That's really the mainstream of psychiatry education these days. Um, you get some training in the therapies, depends on the institution, but you really come out of it thinking, okay, I, I am the, um, the be all and end all of psychiatry. I've learned this tremendous amount of information. I've got all these skills and now I'm going to go out and stamp out mental illness. And then you get into the real world and you realize it's a little more complicated than that. And uh, what you see is that initially, at least my experience is that initially I was using medications a lot because that's what I was trained. That's the model that we were trained in. And the more you use it and you get that nuanced experience of what the medications are doing, side effects, and just pragmatic or common sense that so you'll be sitting in with a family. I mostly work in child psychiatry. You're sitting in with a family and you're hearing about these awful traumatic experiences and wondering, really, is Prozac going to fix that? Uh, you know, and or you hear about these uh, disruptive behaviors, and when you apply other models like models of behavior, you know, behavior reinforcers and things like that, you're, I'm sitting there thinking to myself, well, I can see how that behavior emerged as a result of that consequence that a parent implemented, or that event that occurred in school, or that bullying. And really, I'm going to try to fix this with the medication. And so the more I did that, the more I realized the medication was really a small piece of it. And the MC3 program that you referenced earlier really expanded that because what I found was primary care providers in the community who get even less of the, the psychotherapy and the, the, the behavioral and the interpersonal and the family component of our training they're even more, unfortunately, sort of driven to use medications to solve the problems. And so I found myself, well, we uh, in the MC3 program found ourselves more often encouraging uh, primary care providers to take patients off of medications and get them into the kinds of therapies that they needed or the interventions that they needed, or even getting the, uh, the primary care providers to really reconsider how they're conceptualizing this kid's, just say, disruptive behaviors. And I even looked at our, our prescribing recommendations in the MC3 program over the years and saw that less and less of my recommendations were medications and more and more of my recommendations were around behavior management, about parent training, about interpersonal skill development or exploring trauma or considering uh, things like developmental disorders that maybe were flying under the radar. And so my sort of the arc of my experience has been that Yes, the medications are important. Yes, of course, the biology is relevant. And we can talk a little more about that at some point. But the bulk of the treatment, really, especially considering where we are as a society, the bulk of the treatment is looking at all the psychosocial and dynamic factors that drive those behaviors. Absolutely. I, I think the, the longer I was in practice, the less medication I prescribed. And I've always said, you know, I don't have a pill for messy family. I don't have a pill for you know, bad 
you know, um, psychosocial situations or poverty or food insecurity or racism. I don't have a medication for that. And so you have to have this kind of bigger mind. And I really credit, honestly, you guys for helping me with that. And, you know, I think part of it's just life experience. So, you know, to our younger um, physicians and residents that might be listening, this was a lesson that took me a long time to learn. So I hope bringing you on kind of helps frame that way earlier for some people. Well, you touched on, and let's talk a little bit about one of the biggest challenges for primary care, and I would bet for child psychiatrists too, and that's the aggressive child or the child with really disruptive behaviors. And I think you described it when we talked before was angry kids and grumpy parents, and, you know, they just want this to go away. What about what about that? Yeah, that, that is such a big ball of wax. I'm not sure uh, we'll entirely uh, unknitted, but I really like a quote from Ross Green, who's a psychologist at Harvard in one of his books called The Explosive Child, which I often recommend to parents dealing with um, challenging children and youth, is um, children do well if they can, not if they want to. Let that sink in. The, f- the philosophy or the theory behind that is that children are built to do well. They're, chil- they're built to succeed if they have the tools they need to succeed and if they have the environment and doesn't speak specifically about the environment but it's a a piece of that so if the environment is right and the child's skill set is right they will succeed and they want to succeed and they they can succeed it's not that they want to to behave well or they want to do well it's that they have to have a skill set to do well and um, i often talk with our trainees about the concept of a goodness of fit which is the the fit between the child's temperament and the environment and the caregiving sort of overlay, if you will, how the caregivers respond to that child. So uh, in a very simple Punnett square, um, if you think of on one axis, the child's uh, dimensions and on the other axis, the environmental and caregiving dimensions, um, the child is either sort of vulnerable or resilient and the environment slash caregiving is either uh, helpful, salubrious, as I call it, or pernicious, right? It's along a spectrum. And if you have a resilient child, they do well in almost any environment. They can navigate uh, a complex environment. And we see these kinds of kids. I think you probably see them in your practice more. You, you know, you're sort of amazed at how, how well the kid can, can uh, do in a very tough environment. What we see in our practice are really, and what you you also see in, I think, in primary care, the ones that come to your attention are the, really the vulnerable kids because they lack certain skills or um, have uh, certain temperamental qualities that doesn't work well with their environment. And the environment here is really the broader environment. It's the parenting, caregiving environment, it's a school environment, it's a peer environment, their interactions with all those. And those are the kids who exhibit disruptive behaviors. So the behavior is just a symptom of a deeper problem. Right. And the deeper problem can be along the child continuum. So those are what are the vulnerabilities in the child that make the child respond in the way they do. Right. So, for example, um, some kids, when uh, parents say, OK, you need to put away your iPad, it's dinner time. They don't like it. Most kids don't like that, uh, but they have some cognitive skills or they have a need for the parental approbation or they have uh, certain 
strengths that allows them to defer that pleasure in order to set the table and do dinner, right? And the, how the parent approaches that also determines the child's outcome. So the parent says, honey, come on, uh, it's dinner time. Uh, can you help me set the dinner table? And we can talk about blah, 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 or you know, have I even have some sort of conversation that, that the child is enamored with, then it can go well. But if the parent comes in and, and says in a very kind of harsh and demanding way uh, to do the same thing, the same exact words, they can have a very different outcome. And so when I see disruptive behavior, kids with disruptive behaviors, I'm always looking at, okay, what are the vulnerabilities in the child? What are the events in the environment that, that uncover those kinds of behaviors? And then let's look at which ones we can address, which ones are modifiable. Right? And some of those modifiable characteristics might be biological. And this is where I think the, the medicines are helpful, right? So, so kids can be very reactive, for example. I mean, even out of the womb, parents will say, you know, I have three kids when two came out and they were calm and easygoing and one was just testing every limit from the beginning. This, there are temperamental characteristics. In fact, the temperamental characteristics of children are have even a higher heritability than some of the things that we think about as um, highly heritable psychiatric disorders like depression and anxiety. The temperamental, the heritability of temperament trait, temperamental traits are very comparable. And so some kids are just sort of going to be more reactive. And those kids, maybe some medications can help them be a little more, a little less reactive, right? So less explosive or responsive in a way that, that generates a negative reaction from the people around them. But at the same time, you have to look at what are those reactions of the people around them, right? So what are the parents' response to the child's disruptive behaviors? And let's see if we can, sorry, excuse me. Let's see if we can uh, optimize those or um, sort of develop a different trajectory by changing how parents react to the child's behaviors. So my entire evaluation is really looking along those two spectrums, uh, child vulnerability characteristics and the parent and the environmental um, vulnerability characteristics and trying to find that sweet spot. And what's, what's I think, the, the term I, I often use with parents is what's workable, right? So there are parents where I would love to see them do something different or school systems where I would love to see a different uh, approach to education, but it may not be workable. And so I often am working with the parents to figure out what is achievable in incremental goals and sort of work towards a final goal and whatever that outcome is going to be. So what, one of the things you said about the reactions of others, the intervention there may not be medicating the parents, although maybe that is part of it too, but it might be some kind of parent training or some kind of family therapy intervention. Um, I think there are some specific PMTO, I'm, I'm throwing out letters, um, but some parent-child intervention that kind of retrain the parent and how they respond. And, yeah. and so that's a non-medication and that's where therapy, although it has to be the right kind, the right. Right. So in the approach, you know, words matter, right? So words have a lot of um, uh, impact it just in the, in the same way that if a parent says something to a child and the child reacts explosively, it's not just the words, but it's all the non-verbals that go with it. There's a, there's a great study that I always like to quote. I mean, it, there's a lot of, of controversy around it, but uh, uh, a researcher by the name of Albert Moravian looked at uh, nonverbal versus verbal communication. And, and he did all these really elegant studies that and came 
came out and calculated like 84% of all communication is nonverbal, something in that ballpark. There's a lot of controversy about whether that's the right percentage, but I think we would all agree that a large fraction of what we communicate is nonverbal, and that's often missed. Uh, so when I'm working with parents, I'm usually looking for specific aspects of the interaction, and I'll ask them to role play in my office, or I'll role play with the parents, you know, tell me what happened, what we call like a chain analysis, uh, go through the events or role play the events and, and then look at the specific words or the nonverbals that might have triggered certain negative behaviors. And those are things that you can address. Now, using words to help parents sort of guide parents to the right place is really critical. So just telling a parent, you know, you need some behavior management training, that doesn't work very well. And so it's all your fault. (laughs) Yeah, because that feels like it's all your fault. And it isn't. I mean, that's actually an inaccurate statement, right? It the correct statement, I think, in my opinion, is there's a mismatch between your approach to this child and this child's vulnerabilities slash strengths. So you happen to have a child when if you're in my office, chances are you're you have a child who's having, among other things, behavior problems. To me, that means this child's already on some end of the vulnerable end of that spectrum, right? And so I tell the parents, you just have, you really need, we really need to get you to be more than a typical parent, a little like a super parent. And to get there, there's some skills that I think would be really helpful. These are skills that I wish I had learned when I was uh, a parent of young children. And those are skills around um, behavioral reinforcers scaffolding, as, as Sheila likes to talk about, scaffolding the environment for the child so that they can succeed in that environment. And some parents get it. Some parents, I think it's a little bit harder, right? Because it's being really psychologically minded. But most parents will sort of obviously, you know, well-intentioned for their child and want to get there. And so using the right words to communicate that to the parents are really important. I remember I did a course um, called Crucial Conversations, and it's about, you know, having difficult conversations. And one of the things that they talked about at the very beginning is the shared pool of meaning. So if you start out the conversation with, you know, we all have, we want your kid to do well. You want that, I want that, and we're starting there. So if we have that shared understanding, regardless of where you're coming from or I'm coming from, we can at least agree about that and start there. And I I always like that in in terms of starting things that may be difficult. But it, it also sounds like helping the parents look at themselves and have some of their own insight without it being critical. It, it's really more illuminating. Yeah. And I think that's a that's a great way to put it. Sometimes, at least in my experience, I found that it's easier to get parents there if I also acknowledge what we don't know, right? Like I will often tell them, look, your, your child's exhibiting disruptive behaviors for a mere, potentially a myriad of reasons. I can't accurately place what all those are or even the magnitude of each of those. But what I can say is that there are certain things that we might be able to do that would improve the overall outcome. And to approach those, we can approach those sort of like an experiment. So I often present it as an experiment. So let's, let's take one item, like you know, and I'll go through like a chain analysis on a, and say an explosive event. And I'll identify one thing that from my, my uh, uh, clinical judgment is something that might've been, might've either triggered or exacerbated the situation. Now I'll say, okay, these events are occurring two or three times a day. We have lots of opportunity to test that experiment, to experiment on that and test that hypothesis. So let's say this is what you said when your 
son or daughter did this. Next time, try this. And then just record for me um, what the outcome was. And I've done that with parents, and it's, it's really kind of interesting because parents will, when the, one, the parents will actually do it, will come back and say, yeah, it really had a different outcome. It had a better outcome, I mean, presumably, if it helped. Uh, if it doesn't, I set it up as an experiment so that it, they don't view it as a failure. They view it as an experiment to try. And if that doesn't work, we're going to come back to the table and try something different. Well, and I like that your message is it's not about a bad kid and it's not about a bad parent. It's about strategies. And then that idea that the message you give to the parent is you can be a super parent. I love that because then it would make me feel really good. Like I could do that because, I mean, I certainly know in my own experience, you know, there were a lot of times when I did not do a great job and, you know, I was not my best. I talked to, um, his name is Dr. Robert Saul, and he's done a lot of work on child behavior. And I, one of the things he said I loved was, our job is not to raise happy children. Our our goal is to raise children that have good citizenship, you know, that have a purpose to serve, and then they will be happy. But he talks about parents functioning at above the line or below the line. And if I'm below the line, I'm not at my best. <laughs> And I, I love that. And so you're sort of helping them be at the line or maybe above the line, right. you know, so they can be a super parent. Well, the other piece to the super parent narrative is embedded in there is the acknowledgement that you as a parent are dealing with a child who's more challenging than the usual. Because right? I think parents sort of assume, uh, and then we all have the fantasy, but I don't think anybody goes into childbearing or having a child thinking, oh, I'm going to get a child with a developmental disorder. I'm looking forward to that, right? We all have this, this idea in our head that I'm going to have this, we have this idealized version of the child we're going to have. And then reality strikes. And many of us are fortunate to have children who are sort of within that, what we call neurotypical spectrum. But if you get a child who's outside that and has these vulnerabilities, then that's much more challenging for even typical parents, right? So embedded in the super parent narrative is the idea that you are, you are, you're struggling with a more challenging child. And so I'm going to help you rise to that occasion. if you will. Well, that shows your empathy for the parent. Like I I'm trying to see it from your perspective that, yeah, this really is hard. It's not just you again, being a bad parent, this is a real issue and a real challenge. And um, I, I, I was thinking too about the Ross Green piece is I'm also wondering if the maybe a truth is that parents do well if they can, not because they don't want to. It's not like they get up in the morning and go, God, I hope I can be a really crappy parent today <laughs> and scream at my kid and and have every, I mean, nobody wants that. We all want the day to go well and, and to feel good about each other. We all want that, but some of us are better equipped than others. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's where the, uh, the uh, sadder moment is for me anyway, is that that tends to be multi-generational, right? So if you're a parent that that has the vulnerabilities and then grows up in an environment that exacerbates those vulnerabilities, and then you have children, you're more likely to then uh, respond in a maladaptive way to your child's uh, perhaps neurotypical behaviors, or that because your child carries the same genetic vulnerabilities you do, then your child's... So it becomes this, uh, this sort of dyad that just exacerbates over time, right? That's the, the developmental component that we all struggle with, which is uh, uh, those kinds of problems tend to run in families. And sure. the, 
for multiple reasons. That's not just the biology. It's also the, the cycles of poverty and, uh, you know, the racial discrimination, multi-generational racial discrimination, things like that. So it tends to, to, to concentrate certain pockets and they are the most challenging because you really have to break that cycle and that's hard. You can't tell me that this stuff isn't as hard as neurosurgery. I'm sorry. It's just super complicated. I mean, there are just so many factors. And I think oftentimes we want to boil it down into aggression must just be bipolar disorder. And so if you prescribe risperidone, it's going to all get better. And I mean, you've got all this other stuff. You've got anxiety. You have trauma. You have poverty. I mean, if I don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight, I'm probably not going to be at my best and I'm sure as heck not going to do my homework. Right. And, and so that throwing the chair at school, if I'm in school and not at home virtually, right. Right. You know, maybe it's not about me being a bad kid with bipolar disorder. It's all this other stuff and I'm doing the best I can. Yeah, it really it gets into another whole discussion about um, what is free will. I, I really love looking at the literature on that because we assume that when a, that when a child misbehaves, that it was volitional and maybe even attribute a, an intentional component to it. And, and you'll hear parents, you know, I he did this and I asked him why he did it and he kept saying, I don't know. And I'm sure most parents who are listening to this will have that same experience with young children. You know, uh, years back, if I can give an anecdote. Um, my uh, son one day roundhouse kicked my daughter and I like, asked him, what, why'd you do that? And he said, I don't know. So then I, I did a chain analysis. Like what was going on before he did that? And yes, he's not an aggressive kid. He just sort of, this is this like one time event just before that, like literally within hours before that, he'd been watching one of those martial arts movies. I forgot which one is one of the, the one of the famous ones, but he watched the movie in the movie. There was, various forms of kicking and whatever. And um, soon after that, he got frustrated and he roundhouse kicked his sister. <laughs> he, he thought had, he'd try it out. <laughs> he doesn't really know why he did it. Right. <laughs> it was just, it was, it was a, a series of neurons that connected in, in a response to some frustration. <laughs> and, I love that. <laughs> and, and I use that as an example, of, at least for me, is, is really the concept of what is free will. And some of the things that we think are free will, like we made a choice to do something. There's some very interesting studies that suggest that your mind sort of makes the decision. And then you, your conscious part of you, takes ownership of that decision. But the decision was already made, if you will. right? And that decision was made based on both things you're aware of and things you're not aware of. So for a good example would be, and I, I use this one when I'm training for residents, I say, and this, these are the true, this is a true story, which is uh, when I'm on the inpatient service, I'll go come in at seven in the morning or, and if the nurses have brought a big tray of donuts and if I have eaten breakfast, I can usually resist the donuts. I have high cholesterol and I kind of want to avoid that. But if I haven't eaten breakfast, I will tell myself I shouldn't eat that donut, but I still do. And then afterwards, I feel bad about it because I have to, afterwards, I'm like, I really shouldn't have eaten that. My cholesterol is already in 300 something. Why did I do that? Well, because the conscious part of me tried really hard to resist the donut. But the unconscious parts, the, 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 the drives from the brainstem, my hunger drives, maybe I was frustrated. Maybe I had an argument with someone earlier. All those unconscious drives then said, well, this donut's going to make you feel better. Right. And so I went ahead and ate the donut, even though it wasn't a good idea for me. Um, so there, 
there are other examples like that that you can think of that where you might and you might notice it in your own life where you did something and afterwards wonder I really shouldn't have done that why did I do that right and you end up blaming yourself but really the conscious part of you only had a little bit some input into the decision and there's a lot of unconscious process that goes into that and you know we in psychiatry of course we talk about the unconscious process I would struggle with whether it's real or not I still you know because it's not very amenable to scientific inquiry but I do believe that there are drives that we don't have real good awareness of, but which uh, affect our decisions. Well, and I think it's way easier to just say, well, if you wanted to, you could do that. And, you know, it's way more complicated. You sound like a philosopher. Maybe that's another title for <laughs> child psychiatrist. <laughs> I, have, I have these adolescent patients and young, some of them are now young adults and they're smart people. They have great families, at least best as I can tell, and yet they make uh, poor choices sometimes. And there's a part of me that wants to say, why do you keep doing this? You have such a great future, you know, just make this choice. And of course, I have to suppress that because I have to try to put myself in their shoes and understand why they're making those choices. And there are factors that I don't always know about. Years back, uh, this was a really poignant example. Years back, I saw a kid from about 11 to 18 and then um, uh, went off to college. And then I saw that patient back a couple of times afterwards um, through the entire time. And she was, while I was uh, managing her medications, a therapist here in our building, a really skilled therapist was working with her. And we both struggled because over the entire time that we saw her, we really couldn't make much progress. There were aspects of some of the choices she made that we just couldn't understand. After she went to college, left home, and years later, when she came back and saw me, she uh, was able to finally tell me about some abuse that occurred when she was 11. That abuse clearly affected a lot of decisions she made, but we, we didn't have any line of sight to it, but it was clearly in her conscious and her thinking, and maybe also affecting her at an unconscious level. Right? And it took more than a decade before she developed the trust to be able to talk about it. And we just have to have this huge wheelhouse of all the things that it could be. I mean, our differential has to be big and we have to keep it in mind. And I, I mean, I too have had similar circumstances where a kid was just acting out like crazy. And, and I'm not a brilliant clinician, but it was one of those moments where I was like, I asked the right question, like, is anything bad or scary happening to you? And this, you know, this kid was being sexually harassed at school every single day by a very menacing older classman. And she was suicidal and her mom could not figure it out. I mean, she was mad at her because she was, you know, cutting and all this other. And well, once we figured that out, I mean, it just all, you know, it all came to light right. and, you know, it's not for asking. Right. So the example I gave, we asked about that sure. at every visit. He wasn't ready to tell. He wasn't ready to talk about it. Yeah. And, but it, that event and similar events have taught me to always be very careful about my interpretation. Right? Yeah. So keep in mind that the differential is a lot broader than just what you, the, the small sub, the set of information that you have. I guess we have to be humble when we approach other people in thinking that we are, you know, the savior and that we're the the superhero. Although I think we can be if we are open to listening yeah. and and maybe having, you know, the not necessarily the right questions, but several questions. It, it's more than just one 
Why? Why did you do that? Uh, I think it's really hard for primary care because you just don't have that much time. I really feel for you trying to understand, trying to develop that relationship and trying to inquire in those very challenging questions, often uncovering a lengthy conversation and you have, you know, 10, 15 minutes to do this. You can see how it would be really challenging. The, the advantage, I think, though, that pediatricians and other primary care folks have is longitudinal relationship and trust. Because I may have known, you know, especially when I got to the, you know, being in practice for 30 years, I mean, I had the kids bringing me their kids now. And I know the grandma. And, you know, so I had this other insight. And, and even if I couldn't do it in the 10 minutes, I can have them come back. And it wasn't maybe as hard as, you know, a follow-up appointment with your psychiatrist. So I think that we often feel like time is the barrier, but it, it's more um, time management, maybe how to pick it apart. And most of it is not an emergency. So you don't have to deal with it right then and there. But I think if you can hear the concern address the immediate thing if it's a safety issue for sure, but then buy yourself some time. And there was another thing um, that we were talking about before we started recording, and that was partnering. And you mentioned working with a gifted therapist. And um, I think you had shared with me this pearl about your biggest word of advice was talk to the therapist. Yeah, I think I, I, quoted you earlier uh, a quote that a uh, postdoc conveyed to me when I was a graduate student in neurosciences. Uh, and I, I love doing lab work. So I would just come up with an experiment and just dive right into the experiment. And he would look at me, he was very thoughtful, named Tom Sherman. And he would say to me, you know, an hour in the library will save you a week in the lab. <laughs> and I remember that quote because it really speaks to your sort of the investigative work. And it's particularly challenging for the mental health piece because you really do need to see somebody multiple times to even just get an inkling of what's going on in their life and really give the child or the adult patient opportunity to, to build that trust. Otherwise, it's, you know, it's kind of disingenuous to think that you can understand somebody's life, somebody who's walking somebody's shoes for an hour and understand their life, right? So, um, very often in the course of MC3 consultations, uh, when the patient had a therapist, I would one of my questions would be, have you talked to the therapist? And to be fair, sometimes it's hard to get a hold of the therapist. So I understand that that telephone tagging is challenging. It's hard to get a hold of the psychiatrist even. Uh, but when you can, it is a wealth of information because that therapist may have seen that patient for one, you know, an hour a week for a year and has you know, 50 hours worth of contact from which they can summarize sort of a conceptualization of the case, hopefully also having contacted schools at some at some point, or maybe uh, extensive communication with the caregivers, and really has a much deeper, under, or hopefully has a much deeper understanding of the psychopathology. And you can get that in 15 minutes in a phone call, as opposed to, you know, trying to just racking your brain for years when you see this child for you know, one well-exam visit, however, however you call those. Right, right. Well, and this is a way, this is the a possible, maybe not solution, but 
an approach to this whole crunch of time is partnering up with that therapist in that they are an extension of you. If you have the absolute gift of having an integrated behavioral health specialist in your practice, that's ideal because you can then say, hey, this sounds like a big concern. I have somebody on my team that um, I'd really like you to maybe work with because they have some time they could get some more information then we can problem solve together. And that that solves my problem of I don't have more than 15 minutes, but I can hand it over and knowing that they're going to hand it back. I think that disconnect, I mean, if I just hand you a piece of paper that says here, call one of these therapists that works with your insurance and, you know, don't come back because <laughs> I don't want to deal with this. It's very different if you're, you know, able to say, hey, I have this great therapist. Um, can I can I call them? Can I make that introduction? Um, they'll report back to me because we have that kind of relationship. And I think it's beneficial for the therapist too, particularly if we're doing medication, you know, to say, do I need to adjust it or is there something else going on? Yeah, and I, I agree. And the other piece to that, I think, is that here I'm sort of trying to interpret a primary care's view, but I think they tend to think that a child psychiatrist is what their child needs. And um, we're looking for a savior. Yes. And, <laughs> True story. And but very often a therapist can actually give you a lot more value, especially for the time. It's, a, it's much easier to get a patient in with a therapist than with a psychiatrist, and particularly a child psychiatrist. Uh, the wait times are shorter. Uh, the demand is, is uh, I should say, the supply demand curves are better for a therapist. And they are actually very skilled at what they do. So I would not say that I'm a particularly good therapist, because I know that's not what I do day in and day out. We have therapists in our department who are fantastic, and I would certainly trust my family members to them. So instead of uh, holding out, if you will, for a child psychiatrist, which would be helpful at some point, um, you know, get them to see a therapist as soon as you can so that you can get, you can sort of leverage your time. Think of it as a, as a, a practice extender, as you said. Right? And if you're fortunate enough to have one in your clinic, that's great. But if you're not, just find a couple in the community that you can work well with. Uh, they've been a lifesaver for me. I mean, those fun, plus it's nice to have, you know, relationships with other people that have other skill sets than you do. And I mean, it kind of takes the load off. It's a bit of a relief. I mean, you're absolutely right. I think primary care would like to believe that child psychiatry somehow has the answer that you're holding out that we don't have. And honestly, when I was thinking about doing this podcast, um, I'm thinking, oh, let's it's aggression and let's talk about the medications that you would use. But you know, when you boil it down, that is just a smaller piece. And, you know, there may be some things primary care can tackle, like, is there anxiety? Is there a component of depression? Can we tease that out and start there with some guidance? But there's this whole myriad of options and that that may not be your first go-to. And then there's the really complicated kids and that's a whole nother conversation about complicated kids and psychotropic medication. Um, but I, I've kind of gotten to the point, especially with some of like the atypicals and that I, I have this newfound respect and kind of fear of maybe that's um, a cautious place to go. Yeah, I agree completely. I, uh, I think the, unfortunately, the mainstream 
sort of professional literature still heavily promotes a lot of antipsychotic use in children. And, you know, to be fair, there are times when, you know, we have to resort to it, not because I necessarily think it's the right treatment, but we're up against a wall. Right? When you're really uh, struggling, like the decision I sometimes have to make is, do I not use this medication and potentially this child fails out of their existing supports? So if you have a parent who's just already on the edge and just struggling in parenting this child, and you have a child whose behaviors are just getting to the point where they may lose the support of school personnel, they lose, they're going to lose peer relationships, then I reluctantly will use some of these medications just to sort of squelch some of the, the more severe behaviors, so just so they can stay and, and continue with their supports. But often, and I think this is a, a risk with those medications, is they get started and they never get stopped. Well, and I think that this is perhaps the intersect with child psychiatry is, one, if I'm comfortable enough and I've started, you know, something for anxiety after doing a, a, a reasonable intake and evaluation and, you know, therapy, and, and we've we've kind of done the homework on that, that before you took that leap into, you know, psychotropics like antipsychotics or um, other mood medications, that this might be a place for a conversation with a psychiatrist. And, you know, maybe the kid's able to see you in person, but at minimum, these, these psychiatric access programs where you can hold my hand and ask me those questions like, is it this, is it that? And if you're going to go there with this medication, these are the things that you need to consider. And, and that's where there's that that intersect between the two of us that is so important and has been missing um, because there's just not enough of you and we don't know you. And, but now having this new, maybe it's not that new now, but this Avenue to seek out your help. So you can hold my hand a little bit. Then I feel that. And also I can tell the parent I've consulted with a child psychiatrist and there's some caution about this medication, but we're going to do this together and I can check back in with him and see how it goes if we're going to have to do that. But it's almost like last resort. Yeah. And I always uh, start medications with the intention to stop it. I have that discussion right at the beginning. I would mm, say, this is, I love that. This is the, you know, we're going to start this medication. We're going to try to get you in a place that's somewhat stable. I need your help to sort of figure out what that stable is. And then once you're stable for typically six months, uh, then we're going to have a, a, a discussion about tapering off the medication. I would guess that that must be helpful for parents. And and I, you know, again, think back on my own career where I'm sure that there are kids that have been on medication perhaps longer than they needed to be. And I think, especially as I kind of wrapped up my clinical practice was to start thinking about, let's back off on this. It's not a forever thing. I, I do think, and maybe you can chime in on, it seems like kids that are anxious that anxiety is sometimes can be very persistent through a lifetime. And even with lots of cognitive behavioral therapy, that that sometimes medication may be indicated for a longer period of time. I don't know if that's true or not. That's just me. Yeah. I think anxiety certainly, especially anxiety that persists from early childhood into uh, adolescence, for example, there's some good studies that show that if you have, if you're an anxious infant, barring any kind of trauma, 
that you, you can, some fraction of them outgrow that anxiety or what it looks like anxiety in infancy and early childhood. But if that anxiety or anxious characteristics persist into school age and young adolescence, the likelihood is you know, greater than 90% that you'll be on the anxious end of the spectrum among the population into your early adulthood. Um, that doesn't mean, though, that medications are necessarily the right answer through that entire period. So cognitive behavior therapy, for example, doesn't work super well in an infant. Right? <laughs> there's, there isn't a big cognitive component. There's a behavioral component, but the cognitive component is going to take some time. The, the child has to sort of step up to the cognitive piece. That cognitive piece, of course, is developing as you go through adolescence and young adulthood. And so I kind of think, it as a medic, think of it as the medication is helping for those pieces that we can't really address from a CBT approach at a very very young childhood, at least CBT in the child. I mean, obviously, you can still do the CBT from a parenting and caregiving perspective. And that's really what parent-child interaction therapy is about. It's about the parenting characteristics. Um, but as the child grows older, if you're doing the job right, we should be talking more and more about using coping skills and uh, you know exposure response prevention, all the non-pharmacologic strategies to help temper the, the your body's natural reaction to stressors. Well, and as from a a kid that was anxious from the get go, um, me, um, and of course pass that on to my kids. I know that they're very grateful for that. Um, I cannot say enough about um, cognitive behavioral therapy. I mean, for me, the number one most helpful thing that the therapist said to me is, you will always have anxious thoughts. And somehow that was a huge aha for me, like, oh, I my job is not to make that go away, those anxious thoughts, but I don't have to be a slave to them. I can manage them. I don't have to you know, fall apart and, you know, I can function and just say, oh, that's one of those anxious thoughts. And, yeah. and I think a, a, a therapist said to me recently, feelings are not facts. And I love that, ah, yes. you know, that it's just like, yep, that's just your anxiety speaking. And, you know, it, it's going to pass. They're not permanent. It's right. not good or bad. Um, so I, I, I think cognitive behavioral therapy by a therapist that's really good at it. Yeah. The other piece critical. of that particular uh, kind of scenario is acceptance and commitment therapy, AC uh, ACT therapy, because uh, a component of that, and it's based on CBT principles, uh, but a significant component of that is the idea that what you're experiencing right now isn't permanent. And your own experience tells you that, because if you ask these, these patients, and I often do, I say, how many times in your life have you thought you were going to die of a heart attack, and they'll say, you know, 10,000 times. And um, and how many times have you, have you actually had a heart attack? And it was well, zero. So what can that tell you about the next time you have that experience? Right. This is a trick that I learned. Uh, uh, Joe Himley, uh, a, a psychologist here, had, uh, taught, he's very clever. He comes up with some, some great uh, little uh, similes like that. Uh, patients can really embrace that concept that from a cognitive standpoint. And uh, ACT really sort of builds on that kind of idea that these aren't permanent. They are passing like uh, leaves on a stream is one metaphor that's sometimes used. Uh, there are others uh, in helping people get there. But that's a hard concept to embrace when you're seven years old. And Well, and when you're when you're in the middle of anxiety, it feels endless. And for people who are not anxious, 
they don't get it. They just cannot understand. Like, why are you worrying about that? It's like, I'm not doing this for fun. Right. Exactly. It is what it is. And I'm, it's going to get better. I'm going to go for a walk. But right now this feels, I mean, it is a physical feeling. I mean, it is, I, I can't, I mean, I'll just say, I don't feel good. This doesn't feel and, and physically in my body. But that it's not permanent, I think, is is important. Well, I, I, you have offered so much good information. And, you know, again, I think that this whole intersect between primary care and child psychiatry, we have so much to learn from each other. And this partnership is really powerful. And I'm grateful, again, for um, the work that you all do at U of M and, and across the country that child psychiatrists is, are really working hard to reach out to us and and we desperately need you so thank you thank you and, I, and let me express my gratitude for uh, again from the mc3 program um, it's really been a great opportunity to understand the perspective of the primary care clinician I, I would never have gotten that perspective other than through thousands of counsels we've now done uh, and that I just have tremendous respect for the work that you have to do with the tools you're given and the, and the you know and the framework of which what you're doing it because the mental health piece is just one piece of a lot of care that you're providing to children and it's a it's a challenging one and I think you you all have your work cut out for you and we're happy to help. Well, and I'll tell you that mindset is hugely validating. I think when um, you know Dr. Sheila Marcus said to me. And I think it was a surprise a bit, like, wow, the stuff that you guys are doing is really hard and you're doing the best you can. Man, did that make me feel good. Like, I am really trying hard. I am doing the best I can. Kind of like that parent who is doing the best they can. And I want to be a super doc, trust me. So thank you for helping me put my cape on. Yeah, thank you. So my last question that I ask my guests is, if you could go back and talk to yourself as a resident, what advice would you give yourself? This would probably be more unique for me because I didn't come into psychiatry with both feet uh, at clinical psychiatry. I Clinical psychiatry was sort of a side project for me when I was younger. And it took a while before I jumped in with both feet and really embraced the um, uh, science behind it and, and really the, the treatment component. So for me, I think uh, at least for the younger physician is really jumping in with both feet and um, just absorbing all that is going on, sort of really being attuned to the things that we weren't paying attention to. I'm not sure why, like we weren't really paying attention to trauma 20 years ago and yet it was there, right? It didn't take much to see it. And I think yet you really had to just immerse yourself in it and, um, really be fully invested in it. Well, thank you so much for your time, Presh. I, I really appreciate your willingness to talk with me and, and again, for the work you do. So I hope you have a great day and, and take care. Thank you. You too. Thank you so much, Dr. Patel. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate you and all of your colleagues at MC3 at the University of Michigan for 
really reaching out and helping so much with providing psychiatry support to primary care really all across the state of Michigan. So I wanted to summarize up a couple of points that Dr. Patel made. And number one, in the words of Ross Green from his book, The Explosive Child, children do well if they can, not because they don't want to. So our job is to find out why they're having trouble doing well. Number two, behavior is a symptom and may arise from either the child's skill set, lack, and temperament, either a vulnerable child or resilient, or perhaps a mismatch in the caregiver child, what he calls the goodness of fit. Number three, the psychiatrist, therapist, and primary care providers can offer what's workable for the parent and help the parent become a super parent building skills that match the child's needs. So we're really not in a position to judge the parent, but to try and figure out how parenting skills might best match what the child needs. Number four, remember this is neither a bad kid or a bad parent and that there are many factors to consider. Biology, prenatal factors, trauma, social determinants of health. Before you start medications, consider all of these options. Number five, Modifiable factors such as biology may respond to medication, but only as a part of the plan. Start medication with the intent to stop medication. I thought that was really important, and I'm sure something that I could take to heart and really remember when prescribing medications for children that it may not need to be long-term, although we did discuss where pervasive severe anxiety may require longer treatment, although CBT would still be a preferred treatment. Number seven, if the child is in therapy, always call the therapist as part of your strategy and care plan. The therapist is spending lots of time with these kids and really may have some valuable insights that might give us a better understanding of the situation and in fact might improve how we medicate. Number eight, he gave great advice to his younger self. Jump in with both feet and pay attention. Thank you so much to Dr. Patel. I appreciate your time. And to all of you who are listening, thank you so very much for your time. I know you are busy, busy people. Be safe and take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.